Hey, everybody, this is Dylan with the Scripture Chronicles. We wanted to thank you guys for tuning in to the show today. If you guys enjoy the show, please jump on to iTunes and leave a positive review on there. It really helps out the show. Also, you can find us online at www.thebibleisastory.com. Again, that's www.thebibleisastory.com. Thanks again for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles, the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan, and joining me today is the shirtless Corey Howitt. The people didn't need to know that, okay? Hawaii is pretty hot this time of year. Welcome, guys. The people definitely needed to know that, and they are all the better for it. (laughs) All right, everybody. So today we're going to be jumping into Genesis chapter three, and this is going to be building heavily on what we said last week. So we're going to be going over a brief recap of what we talked about last week. But if you did not catch last week's episode, I would highly encourage you to pause this one and jump back over there. Listen to that one first and then come back over here and listen to this one. This one is going to be building heavily on the narrative elements that we pulled out of chapter two, and the idea of the image of God. Now, as a brief recap, we did talk about what it meant to be created in the image of God last week. That was started in chapter one, that idea that we're created in the image of God, and then really explained in chapter two. So chapter two, then our conclusion was, was that ultimately humans are created to worship and obey God. They're placed in a garden temple, the garden in Eden, that has the courts, it has the holy place, and then at the center of the garden, the most holy place, is the tree of life. We also concluded that that tree of life is representative of God and God's life, and so that the human was encouraged as a priest in the garden, set there to worship and obey, they were encouraged to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, which was representative of God's life. So the human was in a very real sense, having such a close relationship with God that they were actually invited to feast on the divine life. Corey, do you have anything to add to that? You know, that's a great recap. And I don't have much to add except for that transition verse we pointed out. The end of chapter two, chapter two, verse 25 We have this um, lovely transition saying, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so um, chapter two, we saw a lot of things brought up to be an ironic reversal that we're going to see in this chapter, chapter three, which is the fall. Spoiler alert. So we're going to see that verse be mentioned and kind of called upon as well as a lot of of the other things brought up in chapter two. And we're going to see ironic reversals. And we we kind of prepared you for that last week. Now get ready to see how these reversals happen and what is being reversed. Yeah. So like Corey said, in verse 25 of chapter two, we're introduced to the idea that the humans that are now created in the garden were naked and not ashamed. And we left you on a bit of a cliffhanger last week where we said that the word for naked 
in verse 25 of chapter 2 is actually a different Hebrew word than the word for naked in chapter 3, verse 7, which we're going to read over in just a minute. And so basically the idea is that humans in the idyllic state that they are left in in chapter 2 are naked, but they're not under judgment. Things are good. They're not ashamed. But as we're going to see in chapter 3, as soon as humans realize they're naked, that word is actually indicative of the judgment that is on the humans. They're naked and they realize it. They realize that they're under judgment. So with that, verse 25 really acts as the transition verse between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it connects these two narratives such that you know that these are connected, they're meant to be read together, and they're meant to be understood together. So verse 25, humans are naked and they are not ashamed. And then we jump right into chapter 3. So we're going to go ahead and start reading from verse 1. Corey, would you like to read for us? Yeah, jumping into it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and bad. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, so there is a ton going on in this passage, not the least of which is the introduction introducing a brand new character onto the scene. So verse 1 of chapter 3 begins by saying, now the serpent. Well, what do you mean, the serpent? Corey, who the heck is the serpent? That's a great question, right? We we know that God has made a bunch of animals. No animals are even mentioned, right? There's just categories, birds of the air, fish of the sea, beasts of the ground. All of a sudden, we have a serpent just kind of out of nowhere. How does the author of Genesis introduce the character, the serpent? The serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent's one of these beasts of the field, but he's also crafty. The connotation with this word crafty, I know sometimes we could think of like a, a mischievous kind of crafty, but it doesn't appear to be that way. Right, Dylan? Am I mistaken there? Uh, that is correct. Actually, the word crafty like we, like you said, in our current English context, generally speaking, has a negative connotation. You use the word crafty and it's negative. But in the Hebrew Bible, the word for crafty is actually used a bunch of times, including in Proverbs. And it generally is neutral or even positive. And so I think the description of the serpent being crafty is really doing two things. First, there's actually an alliteration between the word crafty and the word naked in verse 25 that just came before it, further connecting 
these two narratives, the Hebrew words sound very similar. Uh, so the author is doing that intentionally to draw your attention to the fact that this narrative is supposed to be read in conjunction with chapter two. Moreover, the word crafty, generally speaking, in the biblical text, particularly in Proverbs, is actually a word indicative of wisdom. And so, in a sense, the serpent is actually being portrayed as a wise character, a paragon of wisdom, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have it up here, too, that um, you do a little word study on this word for crafty. In Proverbs, a lot of times it's translated as prudent, right? So prudent, we think of, oh, yeah, that's a really good trait. And so it's the same exact word, but yeah, it definitely has the link to wisdom and wisdom literature that we know it. So we have this character who's crafty, and he's going to, I guess, challenge some of the wisdom of God. And that's exactly what he does, right? He, he goes up to the woman and, and says, you know, was this God's command, right? You shall not eat of any tree. And the woman's like, no, you can eat of almost any tree except the one that's in the, the middle of the garden. And if you eat of it, and even if you touch it, you will die. And we see the serpent challenge God's wisdom are his judgments saying, you won't surely die. This is verse four, the serpent's response. And verse five, he goes into, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from bad. Right? So, so God already defined what is good and bad in the last chapter, right? Eat of all the trees of the fields. Don't eat of this one tree. And now the serpent's coming to redefine what we have for wisdom so far. So far, the categories of wisdom are very, very simple. Everything you can do is good except for this one bad thing. Have fun. And the serpent comes and even challenges this one notion of wisdom that they have. Yeah, exactly. So like we talked about last week, God is the person who is set to define what is good. And so he's saying that if you obey me, as I set you in the garden to do, then you will have wisdom. But if you do that, which I tell you is not good, if you go against my wisdom, you are going to be taking wisdom into your own hands. And so because of that, the serpent then comes along as this character of wisdom. And again, it's not a negative word that's being used here. It's actually a neutral and or positive word. And so the serpent, as this paragon of wisdom, is coming up and challenging the status quo of God's wisdom rule, saying, is God really wise in this? Why don't you mm -hmm. just choose wisdom for yourself? Yeah, and so that, that's how the, the next section goes down, verse 6. So the, the woman is thinking things over, and she comes to this, this conclusion. She saw the tree, so she looks in and saw that the tree was good for food. Remember what God did each day of creation? He creates and says, oh, that is good. And he sees that it's good. Yes, he saw that it was good. 
And the only thing that wasn't good was man being alone. We talked about that last week. And so the woman is doing the same thing now. She says, oh, this tree is good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Okay, so remember the, the eyes, we just kind of mentioned that, that God saw that everything was good. So far, we, we see good being linked to seeing. So like the eyes are a filter of what is good. And I, I know um, some cultural contexts of, you know, just do what's right in your heart. Um, but so far, the, the Bible is trying to give us the ideas that our eyes are our filter to decide what's good and bad, what, what is truly good. So this tree is delightful to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise. And so the woman buys in to what the serpent offers as wisdom. And so how the, the serpent's wisdom plays out is just trust in what is right in your own eyes person and make the decision so she makes the decision and what's what is the fruit of that decision what's the fruit of this fruit we see that she took the fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate and the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths what's what's all that trying to tell us Dylan? This is really the crux of the biblical issue, if you will. This is the dramatic tension that is going to emanate throughout the entire rest of the biblical story. And that is ultimately, this is a quest for wisdom. That's why we've titled this episode, The Tale of Two Wisdoms. Basically, the question is, are you going to choose God's wisdom? Or instead, like Corey said, are you going to do what is right in your own eyes and define wisdom for yourself? Are you going to rely on human wisdom or are you going to rely on God's wisdom? So the narrative so far has the serpent promising to Eve and then in turn to Adam that if you partake of this fruit, you are going to be like God. And you're also going to be made wise. Well, so far, the narrative has actually not made any indication that either of those claims aren't true, which is weird. We would think that, well, if you eat of the tree that God said not to eat, that if the serpent said you're supposed to eat it and it'll make you like God, well, maybe it doesn't. Well, it, it does. It really turns out to make you similar to God in the sense that you are then the defining characteristic of what wisdom is. The ironic reversal in this sense, though, is that instead of being like God and following his wisdom, like we saw from last week, they were already like God. They were already created in the image of God, put in the garden to follow God's wisdom and to worship and obey. But instead of doing that image of God, they choose to be like God in a different capacity where they choose to define good and bad for themselves. And after they eat of the fruit, it says that their eyes were opened. And so the eyes being the filter to knowing what is right and wrong to making judgment calls 
when their eyes are open, they are actually given wisdom in a very real sense. The difference is, is that this wisdom that they are given is wisdom that is not God's wisdom. They are given a false wisdom that is reliant on their own human faculties. And we discussed this last week that humans are mortal. They are not the eternal all-wise God. Instead, they are frail. They are created from the dust. They don't know everything, and they aren't capable of making these judgment calls. They're supposed to rely on God to make these judgment calls, and God is going to give them what is good. But instead, they decide to choose what is good for themselves. Yeah, wow, that's that's good. And so wisdom from the Bible's perspective is who do you trust to define good and bad? And so we're going to see their fruit of it, right? So Dylan just said some of the fruit is they actually do become a little bit like God, making this decision in front of themselves. Um, But let's continue the story. Um, Verse 8, I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So in some kind of small sense, the people do become like God, like the serpent says, but in a much bigger way, they totally botch wisdom. Because human wisdom is doing what's good in your eyes. Godly wisdom, biblical wisdom, we're going to see is just trusting in God for that wisdom, just like Dylan summed up right before. And so the fruit that they actually reap is that they are naked and afraid. No relation to the TV show, but they're, they're naked and it says that they are afraid and they hide themselves. So shame fills them and God's going around asking, all right, guys, what happened here? And it becomes this blame game. Oh, the woman you gave me, gave me it. Oh, the serpent that was in the garden deceived me. And so the fruit of the wisdom of humans does not end well. Again, in chapter three, verse seven, we see that they are naked. They once again realize they're naked, just like they did in 25, in verse 25 of chapter 2. But this time, this is a nakedness of judgment, if you will. The the word naked here is a word that's later used to describe that they're basically under judgment in Deuteronomy. And this is a theme that we're actually going to see nakedness throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible and even into the New Testament. We're going to see in Numbers how the priests are actually clothed so that their nakedness is covered. You see Noah, who is actually in a shameful state because he is naked. You see then into the New Testament that the righteousness of Christ 
clothes you because you are under judgment and God clothes you through Christ. What's really wild to me here is that this is very courtroom-esque in its imagery. You have God coming to the humans, and instead of accusing, he begins the Inquisition via questions. He says, what is it that you have done? Where are you? He says, uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that you commanded that I commanded you not to eat of? So God basically begins this as a bunch of questions, causing the human then to answer him. And then what the human does is very interesting. So Adam, man, answers by actually making two judgment calls against the judgment calls that God made in chapter two. So you have him say, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. It was her fault. So remember in chapter two, when God made a negative judgment call, he said, it's not good that man is alone. So I will make him a helper. And he formed woman. Well, now Adam is saying the judgment that you made that you said, it's not good that I'm alone. That, that thing that you created for me is bad. So Adam is actually making a human wisdom judgment call against the godly wisdom judgment call made in chapter two. And then the woman then says, well, yeah, it's not me either. It, it was the serpent. He, he deceived me and I ate. And so she also defers the blame. But it's wild to me that, that Adam is actually questioning God's good judgment in this verse. Yeah, it, it is very wild. God is being questioned. God is questioning the people that he made. And we have that ironic reversal of the good helper to fix that, which was not good man being alone. Adam blames as this thing is not good. <laughs> Should have left me alone. So yeah, so the people fail this test, right? So if we think about this as a test, what the heck is this tree doing here? Why is it in the middle of the garden? What the heck is a serpent here? Why is it trying to deceive Adam and Eve? The people fail miserably. And so out of all this, God gets his answers as like a, a judge or some sort of uh, prosecuting attorney firing questions at the defendant. And going into verse 14, God is going to start doling out curses, right? So everything of the earth was good and God blessed his creation. And then when things go awry, he starts to curse that which was blessed. Um, but interestingly enough, he starts with the serpent, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Wow. What a curse. Dylan, what, what's happening here? In verse 14, God begins by cursing the serpent, which is kind of an odd thing. He basically begins by saying, because you have sought to deceive the woman by 
proclaiming a wisdom other than mine, you are going to be cursed such that you are on your belly. You are eating the dust. This isn't necessarily a exclamation that prior to this point, the serpent had legs uh, like some are in the habit of of proposing, but instead it is really suggesting that the serpent is going to be brought low. He is going to be put into a very lowly state, pitiable by pretty much any other creature. And then he's going to put enmity. That is, he is going to put discord or uh, he's going to put uh, resistance between the seed of the woman and the serpent's seed. So you actually have two different characters then being talked about or groups of characters potentially in the seed language. Again, remember, we are really seeing a heavy connection between the humans and trees. So like trees are fruit bearing plants. So to our humans, fruit bearing humans, they bear fruit and have seed offspring. And the serpent seems to also have a seed, but that's not to say that this particular serpent isn't connected with the seed of the serpent. Moving forward, the seed of this woman is going to crush the head of the serpent himself, not just the serpent seed, the serpent seed, but the serpent himself. And the serpent's going to attempt to bruise the heel. Now, this is the first in a long line of messianic expectations that we are going to see. This opens up the floodgates, if you will, of the idea that there is going to be somebody who's actually going to come and rectify this. God was not surprised at the human's failure, at the human's selection of their own wisdom over his. Instead, he is actually already in the works of making a way that this is going to be rectified. Is that right, Corin? Yes. So what some people refer to this first mention of the Messiah is the proto-evangelium. There's a, a million dollar word you could stick in your back pocket. It's the first mention of the gospel evangelium. So the first mention of the good news that is Jesus. So the seed is these two groups of people. So from the very get-go, we have these two groupings. Um, later on becomes two paths. And so there's going to be offspring of the woman and then offspring of the serpent, which could be a bunch of people, like Dylan said, or it could be one specific person. But as you, you look into this, we have this epic clash at the end of verse 15, where it says, he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we have this blow for blow, right? So someone's going to come and crush the serpent and the serpent is also going to get this seed of the woman, right? And so, yeah, spoiler alert, Jesus dies on the cross. He defeats death and sin and Satan and he has to experience death, right? So just this amazing promise, which gets back into what Dylan said, God's not surprised. God knew, and he doesn't need to process things like we process, like, you know, for those who have kids or even manage other people, uh, like teachers um, or employers, you have someone under you who does something wrong. They 
rebel in some way. And as humans, we react in the moment, right? So sometimes we react kind of harshly, but we see God's very first reaction is, all right, here's the solution. It's like, what? He, he didn't even get to the consequences for the people yet, the ones who destroyed his good creation, the ones who brought about these curses. And so we see, um, just as Dylan said, the knowledge of God and how great in wisdom he is. And so um, it, it's also funny, Dylan, that you brought up that just because it says on your belly you shall go to the serpent, that it doesn't mean they once had legs and the legs were taken off as a curse. Because I just had a student in my youth group ask that just like a couple months ago. So that's funny. Yes, I agree with that. But yeah, just such an incredible promise that God just starts off with this. All right. I have a plan for redemption. That's just such a cool God thing to do. Um, God is cool. Take away the day. So moving on to now the woman. So she's going to get her scoldings, her curse. Um, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Right. So this curse is directly going against the first blessing that God gives people. Be fruitful and multiply. Now that's going to be painful. Yeah, exactly. So this once again brings up that idea of the ironic reversal between chapters one and two and then chapter three, where things were in one state and they were good. And now the ironic reversal is that they are being changed to be in a poor state and things are now bad. So the curse then to the woman is, like Corey said, the blessing that you are going to be fruitful is now going to be a curse to you in the sense that you are going to experience pain in your blessing. When you have children, you are going to experience pain. Moreover, Eve, when she was created, or woman when she was created, she was created to be a helper to Adam, and it was good that Adam needed this helper. And that was the judgment call of God. Now, the ironic reversal is that now Eve is going to desire for her husband and that he's going to rule over her. So instead of her desiring to help, yeah, how she's designed to, it, it instead becomes much more this idea of her seeking to rule and being ruled over in return. Yeah, totally agree that. Eve is now wanting to raise up over her husband and her husband will now rule over her. So it's this clash of wills. It's no longer going to be this wonderful, loving, peaceful union, doing things together perfectly, right? Marriages now suffer strife and it is a battle of two wills. If you're married, like Dylan and I are, you have probably experience this. Although I hear that Dylan's marriage with Raina is perfect. So I don't know if he can empathize. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the curse for Eve, this reversal of the first blessing given to humanity. And so now verse 17 to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground for out of which you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. There is a whole lot going on in this particular section now with the curse to Adam. And the first of which is you are going to be eating of the ground. You're going to be working the ground. You're going to be working it with sweat and toil. Thorns and thistles are going to sprout out of it to plague you. And you are going to have to eat of your own labor. Remember last week, we talked about two things. First off, in chapter two, it references that no bush had yet grown up on the earth, even though in chapter one, we saw that God created plants on the third day. And the reason being is it's in stark contrast to this verse right here, where basically chapter two is saying there weren't any thorns and thistles yet. The curse hadn't happened. But then as soon as Adam sins, thorns and thistles are coming out of the ground and plaguing him. Ironic reversal. Secondly, Adam is having to work the ground in order to get food in contrast to two things. First off, in contrast to the fact that God had provided their food in chapter two, when he said that you can eat of any tree of the garden, God is providing for them everything that they need. They don't need to work. And then again, in chapter two, most English translations, like we talked about last week, say that man was placed in the garden to work and to keep it. We suggested based on the work of the late John Salehammer that instead those two words would be best translated to worship and obey. And then in that sense, this is the ironic reversal of worshiping and obeying. Instead of worshiping and obeying God and eating of his provision, now they're choosing their own wisdom and they're eating of the ground that they are actually having to work because it's no longer a blissful existence in God's presence where God provides, but instead one where they have to rely now on this newfound wisdom that they've gotten for themselves. So they have to work the grounds out of their own wisdom. Finally, the interesting thing here is that the word for man is Adam, the Hebrew word Adam, and then the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. So the author is really drawing a connection between Adam and Adama, so the man and the ground, saying that you're going to eat of the ground and when you die, you're going to return to the ground for from the ground you were taken and to the ground you will return because you are nothing but mortal. Now, because you are being cut off from my, that is God's divine life. And so because of it, because you chose your wisdom instead of mine, you no longer have access to me and my benefits. Instead, you are going to be working the ground, surviving by your own wisdom, and then it will not last you. You will die because of it. And before I go on, I have a few more things to say on this passage, but Corey, did you have any thoughts on anything I just said, or did you want to add anything? That's so cool. Just the idea of like God makes us eat. That's how he created us, right? And so that's how he sustains us. 
And so this, the idea that we were invited to eat of him and all, all this imagery of, of scripture, it gets into this idea of eating of God and being sustained it, in the curse is almost like a, a removal of that. It's like, all right now just eat of the ground. So you're kind of removed of, you know, how, how it was originally portrayed, but you're a little bit more removed from God now. And instead of things just going good and easy, you're going to have to really, really work for it in order to eat of it and to stay alive. So God was going to sustain you. And now you really need to work to sustain yourself. Obviously God is still sustaining, but it seems a little bit more distant than what his intended closeness and proximity and closeness and sustaining would look like. Yeah. And since you mentioned it, I did want to say a few more things on that eating imagery. So throughout this section, so from chapters one through now where we're at in chapter three, we have a continual appeal to the imagery of eating. And this is something that's going to come up in the rest of the Bible. So it is very important to understand what exactly is going on from here so that when we continue into our story, we then pick up on these clues. So like Corey said, the eating imagery is really indicative of the idea that humans are sustained through what they eat. If, if they don't eat, they die, right? And so the imagery of eating is, in a sense, representative of that which sustains a human. So for God then to create a tree at the center of the garden and say, this is the tree of life, which is basically representative of me and my divine life. If you eat of it, you will be receiving closeness with me. You will be receiving the divine life so that you'll be able to continue to live and you will be receiving me and my benefits. And so for us then as humans to eat that, eat God, we are being sustained by God. And that's the ideal then for us in turn to eat of the tree of knowing good and bad, it is again our desire as humans to then eat of the fruit that will allow us to sustain ourselves on our own wisdom. So by eating of the tree of knowing good and bad, we're opting to sustain ourselves on our own wisdom instead of sustaining ourselves on God. And like I said, the imagery of eating will come out consistently throughout our reading of the biblical text. We're going to jump into Numbers and Leviticus and whatnot eventually and talk about all of the different food laws that are set, what's clean and unclean. And God in those verses is in a very real sense going back and hearkening to this, saying, hey, this is clean and this is not clean. And this is an object lesson of basically what happened in the Garden of Eden. Are you going to choose to obey me and my wisdom? Or instead, are you going to eat that which is unclean and rely on your own wisdom. And finally, the ultimate representation of this eating imagery is then back in Christ in the Christian practice of communion, like we talked about last week, where once again, we are able to eat of a new tree of life, Jesus, who claims to be the life, right? And so when we partake of the bread and the wine in communion, we are once again eating 
of the tree of life, receiving God's divine life and the closeness with God, just as if we were eating of the tree of life in this context and receiving Christ and his benefits. So the eating imagery is really powerful. And, and this was just a good spot to interject that into our podcast, pay attention to the eating imagery as we continue to move on. With that, um, transitioning from the eating and life connection, um, I also wanted to talk a little bit more about death. I think it's safe to say that's everyone's favorite subject. So death, remember God said in the command in chapter two, uh, I think it's two verse 17. If you eat of it, you will surely die. And remember Satan's slight deceptions. You won't surely die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. And so in that moment of the eating of the fruit, um, I don't know if you're like me, but you read it and you're like, oh, it's not poisonous. They don't just die immediately. But yet at the end of the curse to Adam, the end of verse 19 says you're made out of dust and to dust you will return. So you're going to return to the ground. Your life will end. But there's also this idea of being separated from God, right? So if connection to God is life and they're connected to it by eating and they dwelt with him, they walked in the garden with him, there is now going to be a separation. So there's this physical death. And at the end of this chapter, we see God cast man and woman, that is Adam and Eve, out of the garden where that was the place where God dwelt with humans, right? So we have this idea of death that's maybe a little bit different than what we think of it, but there's this idea that connection to God, being with God is life, and being separated from God is death, okay? So it's, um, we have places to talk about the first death and the second death. First death bodily, second death spiritually, right? So we see that the people are promised that they will die physically, but we're about to see is they're cast out of the garden where they're in God's presence, which is absolutely huge to the way in which the Bible will now talk about life and death, right? And life is always associated with God, death with disobeying him. Life is associated with what is good and death with that, which is what is evil. So all these big themes of creation are now intertwining with these wisdom of ideas of good and evil and life and death. Let's go ahead and continue reading. We're going to jump into verse 20. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So this is actually the second time that Adam names his wife. So if you guys remember from last week in chapter two, verse 23, Adam actually names his wife when God creates her. So God creates her out of his bone and then he calls her woman and he calls her woman because she was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. Well, once again, here we're seeing that Adam names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all the living. The name Eve, it sounds like the Hebrew word life giver, and it looks like the word for living, right? So he calls his wife 
living. And I think we talked a little bit about this last week, but names are just very important in Scripture, in this culture. Adam is called man, which is representative of all humanity. Eve is called life. Her name, it sounds like life giver because she, out of her, is how God will bring in the life of every other human who will ever live, right? So, yeah, names are a big deal. And if you guys remember when we were talking about the nakedness imagery, the nakedness imagery that's going to consistently come up as the nakedness of judgment, God is consistently throughout the scripture showing as clothing human nakedness in the respect that God is actually going through a process, as we've already seen him start here, of actually bringing humans from a state of judgment to a place of being clothed. And so ultimately, we see that that comes to fruition in Christ when Christ is described as the the clothes of righteousness that are then put on us. And the high priests are clothed with garments to cover their nakedness so that they can go into the holy place. And again, here, God makes for humans clothes. And what's interesting about this is at the seventh day, God rested from his work. The last thing we have about the work that God was actually doing, what he was making is that God is actually at rest. He then finished making that which he was seeking to make and rested, blessed the holy day, the Sabbath day and made it holy. But all of a sudden, God is making again. God gets up and starts working again. And he made for the humans garments of skin and clothed their nakedness. Again, a, a representation of the fact that God isn't just giving up on them, but instead is actually going to inaugurate this process, like we've already seen from the seed of the woman, of actually bringing humans from this state of rebellion the state of choosing their own wisdom back to himself. And he is going to clothe their nakedness of judgment with new clothes. Eventually that'll be Christ. Uh, So that is a really powerful image that comes out of verse 20. And 21. Yeah. So God is clothing them with garments and notice it's also garments of skin. So now he's had to use the life of something else to clothe their nakedness or their state of judgment. Yeah, that's really cool. Some really cool imagery. And so let's read the last section of Genesis 3. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and bad. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So here we have a number of images that are again going to be recurring as we read, so we should pay attention to them. So. First off, we've already discussed two times where we believe the Trinity has already been mentioned. So we have at the very beginning of creation, 
in Genesis 1. And then once again, we talked about the image of God. So humans being created in the image of the us that is in chapter 2. And we describe the us as being the divine trinity. And we rejected the idea that is gaining a little bit of traction that the us in chapter 2 is indicative of God and the council of heaven or the divine council or the hosts of heaven, but instead said no, that humans are created in the image of God. And once again, this is probably a reference back to that, the us here uh, in verse 22, where behold, man has become like one of us. So that is again, a reference to the Godhead and knowing good and evil. So again, it worked. They actually became like God. The serpent in that sense didn't lie to them when he said, you'll become like God. They, they did become like God. The ironic reversal though, is they became like God without God. They're actually, even though they become like God, it's not seen as a positive thing in the narrative. It's being displayed as a negative thing to be like God in this sense. It was a positive thing to be like God in chapter two, but all of a sudden they're like God, but it's bad. It's folly. It is an ironic reversal because they are no longer with God. They are eating of the, the works of their own hands instead of eating of the tree of life. Well, yeah, this is something that's used to always really perplex me. Like I might be a little dramatic, but I, I was always so confused as to why is it that the tree of knowledge of good and bad is wrong? And it, for you to say um, what you said, that they became like God in a bad way, it, it almost makes me, I'm sure some listeners at home feel a little bit uncomfortable. Not that I disagree with you, but it, it's uncomfortable to think of how can we be like God in a bad way? And just like what we talked about already, just the idea that God wants us to depend on him and then rule with him. And what we've sought to do instead is become autonomous, right? We want to do things on our own without God. We want to rule the earth on our own without God. I mean, look around, turn on the news. How's that going for humans so far in history? Not good. And so we end up trying to take wisdom for ourselves without God. I know we said that a few times already, um, but th this is fundamental to that question of why was it bad to take of this tree? Because remember that the tree epitomizes, or taking of this tree epitomizes um, taking knowledge for yourself or trusting in God for that knowledge, or perhaps wisdom is a better term. So are we going to trust in God for wisdom or take it for ourselves? And it's right in the middle of the garden saying, human, each day you have even more than each day, moment by moment, in the middle of your life, you're going to choose between what's you know, good to your eye or that which is right and good in God's eyes. And so, yeah, it, it's just really shocking to say that the serpent was right. And even God says it, like you say in verse 22, and that, that's shocking to me. I'm sure some other people perhaps have overlooked that little detail before just thinking, ah, oh, you know, the serpent is totally lying. But the fact that he did give us some truth and saying, you won't surely die, as in they don't die right away. And as you will become like God and God admitting that he is actually, or he and she 
people have become like us in some way is kind of mind-boggling to really look in and see those details and just to know what all that means and just how complicated that now makes pursuing wisdom. It's no longer just not eating of one tree, but eat of anything else, but it's every moment you're going to have some sort of tree of knowledge of good and bad encounter. And you're going to have to either choose to do what's right in your eyes or do what's right in God's eyes. And I mean, it's just such a crazy story. And this is such a crazy detail to see at the end that I guess I'd never really focused on before. Yeah, that is why we named the episode today A Tale of Two Wisdoms, is it really is the conflict of the Bible. Will humans choose their own wisdom or will they choose God's wisdom? And that is consistently what we're at war with whenever we you know, you get the high point, they chose God's wisdom. And then you get the low point. Nope, they chose their own wisdom. And that is why Hebrew literature in general, the Bible in particular, is written more so as a narrative that that evokes wisdom. It's supposed to be meditated on and it's contemplative in its nature because it really wants you to understand what is God's wisdom. It's not propositional in its nature. A little bit of the New Testament is, but by and large, the Bible, and particularly the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is really contemplative, meditative literature showcasing what wisdom truly is, and then showcasing what folly or human wisdom truly is, and why that is our detriment. So, ending the chapter, then we see Adam being driven with his wife out of the garden to eat of the ground that they're supposed to work. Like the curse said, they're no longer able to eat of the tree of life, but instead they're eating of the ground. They're eating of their own wisdom. They're sustaining themselves themselves. They're no longer being sustained on God's wisdom. And God drives them out and then puts a cherubim to guard the garden so that they cannot eat of the tree of life. And in the sense that that is merciful, because if they were to eat of the tree of life in their sinful, rebellious state, that would be a pretty bad thing. But interestingly, God is saying you cannot eat of the tree of life. It's not just, oh my goodness, we don't want you to, but you can't. You are choosing wisdom for yourself. And until there is recompense for this, this is something that's going to be barred from you. And interestingly, short side note, as we'll see, cherubim are what guards the tree of life here. And we'll come to find that the Ark of the Covenant is actually typological of a tree of life and also guarded by cherubim. Just a little side note. But ultimately, God is basically saying, you cannot come and eat of the tree of life anymore. That is your death. You are separated from me. And ultimately, you will experience physical death too, like Corey said, where because you're unable to eat of this tree of life, you are mortals. Your wisdom bought you your own death because the only way that you were sustained, truly sustained, is by feasting on the tree of life, on God's life. Corey, do you have any final thoughts? Going to meditate on that one for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure a bunch of listeners at home will too. Just what does that all mean? In that context, what does that mean for me and my life decisions each moment? Yeah, 
this this is definitely um, evoking meditation, not in meditation of like this new age practice, but meditating on God's words to see his intended meaning and not also just getting the meaning, but then how to live out of his wisdom rather than my own wisdom. Because in many ways, we're not even aware of what is the difference between my wisdom and God's wisdom. We're constantly having to quiet our selfishness to really hear from God. And so, yeah, uh, lots of meditation on God and his word ahead. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we are out of time for today. We want to thank all of you guys for tuning in to the Scripture Chronicles for this episode. Again, if you enjoy the show, we would love it if you went on to iTunes and left a positive review on there. You can leave a review anywhere that it says that you can, but iTunes is the big boy in the podcast world that really helps us get seen. Also, if you want to dialogue with us, we would love to hear from you. Check us out. The email is scripture chronicles at gmail.com. Again, that's scripture chronicles at gmail.com. Also, the website is now live. Exciting news. If you want to check us out online, you can check us out at www.thebibleisastory.com. And there you'll be able to get links to all of our newest podcasts. We're also going to be launching a blog. We're going to have a resource site on there as well and a whole bunch more check us out www.thebibleisastory.com again thank you guys so much for tuning in today have a good rest of your day all right guys see you later